Hello and welcome to Views from the Market, Mid-Market Private Equity and M&A in Canada. My name is Mario Negro, and I'm a partner at Stike Malia. For today's podcast, I'd like to welcome Greg Duggett. Greg is the co-founder and CEO of Alcorn Partners. Greg, welcome and thank you for joining us. Mario, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me on this podcast. Really excited for the chat. Greg, we always start by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves and their history. And so I'll start first uh, a little bit about you, and then we'll jump into Alcorn. So why don't we start with yourself? So I have a pretty traditional career background by finance standards. I started my career in investment banking at Credit Suisse. I did that after doing my undergrad at Queens. Even during my undergrad days, though, I was always interested in investing. And so it wasn't long after I had started working at CS that I made the leap to private equity. I spent almost a decade working at various firms in Toronto, including Onyx and Alignvest, and in between those stints also did an MBA in the US. And then fast forward to today, my co-founder, Shemez Varani, and I started thinking about building Alcorn Partners and what that could look like. And so even before we kind of first met one another, both of us had independently arrived at the conclusion that the lower middle market investing space, including the search fund world, was a really interesting asset class. You know, a decade earlier when I was in business school, I was fortunate enough to be introduced to the space. And since then had kind of tried to find a path to break into it in a way that made sense with my personal and professional ambitions. So coming out of my time working in private equity, I I had seen the power firsthand of investing in these companies, taking an active ownership role and realizing what we all think are outsized returns for the folks who are operating in this space. And for his part, Shemez had been a very consistent, albeit at times passive investor in this space as well, and had also seen the appeal of this asset class. And so after spending some time Thinking about our partnership and the model we wanted Alcorn to adopt, we launched earlier this year and we've been off to the races since then. Greg, I love what Alcorn represents. It's unique to our marketplace. You're trying to kind of, you know, really, as you said, thread the needle on where this market can use another participant that really focuses on on opportunity. So tell us a little bit about the kind of thesis for Alcorn. You know, it some ways looks, it smells like a traditional P fund, but in other ways it's not. It's a little bit different. And Maybe you could tell us a bit about the differences too or the uniqueness of it. For sure. So I think like most people who operate in the space, our goal is to buy what we think of as enduringly profitable lower middle market companies. But our goal is to hold those investments for multiple decades. And our objective for each business that we invest in is to partner with individuals to professionalize and optimize them. As you know, because many of these businesses haven't been run to maximize profit. And so, you know, I mentioned in my intro that Shemez and I had spent a lot of time thinking about the design of Alcorn, and we approached it really based on how we wanted to invest our own capital since the Alcorn team, broadly speaking, represents almost 40% of our $65 million capital base. And much of our design was informed by our respective experiences in the space and our desire to, candidly, it was driven almost entirely by our desire to avoid selling good businesses too early. And that's something we think happens all too frequently kind of in this arena. And as we thought more about having really long-term quasi-permanent capital, we also realized that this type of structure could not only prevent the interruption of compounding, which is what every long-term investor seeks to achieve, but it reduced reinvestment risk because these deals are tough to do. It allowed us to defer taxes. And most importantly, it let us take a much longer-term view as owners and investors in these companies, given the amount of work that's required to professionalize them beyond just surface-level changes. And so for all of those reasons, in addition to the fact that we could represent having certainty of capital to potential sellers and that we could represent that we could provide a permanent home for their businesses, 
Our solution was to create a very flexible 20-year fund structure that can recycle 100% of its capital across a portfolio of assets and really, through that design, funnel capital to its highest and best use. So we're a little bit different than traditional private equity firms. We have a longer holding period by design, and we have a bit of a comparable facet as a search fund where we look to partner with young, hungry, motivated individuals to help professionalize these companies. Practically speaking, you know, our goal with Alcorn is to prudently invest the initial pool of capital across five or six businesses, building debt capacity and cash flow generation along the way, and subsequently use that debt capacity and those cash flows to either invest in new businesses, so, you know, business seven, eight, nine, ten, or to reinvest that money into portfolio companies that we already have to kind of accelerate growth. Greg, I want to drill down on the long-term focus of Alcorn because it's unique. And particularly, as you highlight, we talk about long-term funds often in our marketplace, you talk about seven years or 10 years. When you talk about it from Alcorn, you talk about 20 years. And, you know, it's very unique. It's very original. You know, when I remember when we first talked about it, I was kind of like, wow, 20 years. You've really drilled down on uh, benefits of the 20-year hold period. You've spent some time thinking about why this is a great path for, but you've already touched on some of them for multiple reasons. Tell us a little bit more if you can, with the secret sauce, about the thesis for the 20-year hold period. Why is it so attractive to you? Why is it the compelling part of your investment thesis? I think the truth is the 20-year period is somewhat artificial. We needed to come up with a very long date that you know our fund would work towards. But really, the way that Shemez and I always thought about this was not defined by a number. It was about our desire to own compelling assets that generate a lot of cash for a long period of time and to be able to recycle that capital in thoughtful ways. And so I always use these analogies very loosely, but if you think about some of the big businesses that have been built around this concept of recycling capital, a Constellation, Berkshire, those types of businesses, what they've been very good at doing is recycling capital throughout their structures, avoiding the need to continuously or consistently from an investor perspective, reinvest those dollars and kind of interrupt the compounding that happens when you have a good business with high returns on invested capital. And so our thesis is we can find those businesses in the space, we can buy them right, we can hold them for a long period of time and just have all the efficiencies that I talked about when I talked about our model around uh, about minimizing reinvestment risk, minimizing or at least deferring the taxes associated with compounding that capital and not having to sell a business before you can kind of maximize the value creation plan, which in this case, and I think I alluded to this as well, it takes time. It takes a lot of time to actually professionalize a business. It takes a lot of time to go after all of the low-hanging fruit that many of these companies that have been managed for lifestyle reasons as opposed to profit maximization kind of take to realize effectively. Uh, and so that was really the genesis of why we wanted this very long-term hold period. Greg, you know, one of the other things that's unique to add on to the long-term hold period is often, as you point out, the focus is the cash flow and being able to kind of really maximize the cash flow potential of these what I would assume at this point are just nice businesses that keep churning cash. But you, your focus is to then use that cash to kind of reinvest. It's not often people see the cash flow business as just a distribution strategy. But in your case, interestingly enough, your focus is actually a little different. And maybe we talk a little bit about that idea of, you know, the idea of the cash flow isn't for distribution, but for reinvestment. Yeah, I think it goes back to the efficiency. And so if, if we, and we were very fortunate in that we were able to find partners who are willing to kind of lock arms with Shemez, myself, and the rest of the Alcorn team for that long-term period. But if you think about the most efficient way to compound that capital, 
it isn't to return it to investors, have them pay taxes on it, and then have them reinvest it in another business. Really, the right way to do it is to let that compound for as long as possible without being interrupted. And so our structure, the way that we designed it, allows us to move that capital you know, from one portfolio company up to a holding company into another portfolio company or a new acquisition without triggering those taxes for ourselves or for our investors. And so there is a bit of a tax efficiency component to it. And I think that was a big driving force behind why we wanted to build Alcorn the way that we did. So as a long-term investor, focus on reinvestment and turn to the kind of businesses that you're looking for. What is the sweet spot for Alcorn in terms of sector, industry, size? Like, What's your sweet spot? Yeah. So as I think about what we look for, I think there are really two components to it. What we look for in terms of an investment opportunity and how we think about partnering with people. Because there are two components of our engine, right? And so on the former, we cast a pretty wide net, right? I mean, our catchment area is both in Canada and the US. We're looking to put, call it eight to 10 million of equity to work in any given opportunity. Or I, I shouldn't say that, have a path to putting that much equity to work in short order. We're generally industry agnostic, but we do need to believe that there's no existential or obsolescence risk to the businesses that we're buying and that the companies we invest in have real sustainable competitive advantages, given, to your point, Mario, we're trying to hold them for long periods of time. So they have to be able to withstand the test of time. And for the most part, we're control investors. So we have the ability to take minority positions, but we do need to see a path to being the majority investor for any investment that we make. And that's because of the way that our structure works. So that's kind of what we look at in terms of an investment. As it relates to our executive partners, I think I mentioned we're huge believers that talented, motivated, properly incentivized individuals can be incredibly positive forces in the lower middle market space. I think, as you know, the search fund model has proven that out time and time again. So really, we look to partner with folks who are passionate about running small enterprises and who want to take a hugely entrepreneurial bet on themselves, but who may not have the same risk tolerance for whatever reason as a traditional searcher, whether that's capital raising abilities, transaction execution skills, what have you, as you know, somebody like Alcorn and our team would have. And Greg, in terms of size, what's the sweet spot for size? So we think about it in terms of equity, so eight to 10 million of equity. I think that typically translates into five to 10 million of EBITDA or cash flows. The most recent deal that we did, as you know, was around $50 million of enterprise value. That's probably on the upper echelon of what we look for. And you kind of led me to the next question. You've, you've now done your first deal. I was going to ask you a little bit about your experiences with the first year, whatever you could tell us about it, but a little bit more about the deal, the opportunity, how it kind of fits into your thesis and you as a reflection of where you want to go. So we haven't disclosed the name of the business, given some of the sensitive customer relationships, but the company itself is a niche Ontario-based manufacturing business. And in many ways, we've obviously been reflecting on the investment how it fit into Alcorn's model. I mean, we think it's very representative of what I would think of as an Alcorn deal today. The business has been around for 100 years. It was family owned and operated. It's a market leader within a highly profitable manufacturing niche. And it, in our opinion, possessed real durable competitive advantages that we think will hopefully stand the test of time. The transaction dynamic was one where the selling shareholder was in his 80s and wanted a path to transition. And we worked with him, you know, to transition ownership seamlessly without negatively affecting key customers, suppliers, employees, or other company stakeholders. 
And he cared a lot about preserving his legacy, and he felt comfortable selling to someone who could hold on to his business for a long time. And I think, you know, I might have alluded to it earlier, but one of the benefits of having 20-year capital is I can sit across from somebody who spent their life, you know, blood, sweat, and tears building a business, and I can actually say Alcorn can be a permanent home for what you've built, for your employees, for your stakeholders. And that doesn't resonate with everybody. Some sellers are purely profit-maximizing, and they don't really care to whom their business goes. But in this case, I think that was important. We're also in this situation backing and partnering with the existing management team who invested alongside us to continue building on the legacy of the selling shareholder. And we're also leveraging our executive partner network to help pursue growth. So we have an operating partner in this case who you know, was a former KKR operating partner and a former McKinsey partner who's going to work with the Alcorn team to really help transition this business from what was a family-owned business into something that's highly professionalized and turbocharged for the next chapter. And then the last piece, I mean, I mentioned it was a $50 million enterprise value deal. I mean, that's a reasonably sized transaction. It's probably larger than kind of median or modal search fund deals. And so for us, that was something that made a lot of sense in terms of how much capital we're looking to deploy. And it was something that we could move quickly on given our committed capital base. Greg, now that you've done your first deal, you've been out there, you know, you're pussing out there, seeing what's in the market. What have you learned? What have you seen or what's the experience in terms of your focus and tailoring as you go forward? Yeah. So I think this question probably has two components to it. There's kind of what we're seeing micro day to day, which is what you're seeing micro day to day as well. And then maybe our perspectives more broadly on kind of this space, this industry, where it goes from here. I know you just had an event that probably broke some fire codes at Stikes, so we can have a good chat around what we're seeing in our views. So I think day-to-day on the ground today and Q3 of 2023, there's a lot of stuff in the market. There's a lot of activity. But in terms of what's actionable, I would say that it's probably a little bit lower quality than kind of what was coming to market earlier this year or late last year. Part of that is because it's the holiday season and certainly that we're entering into it. But our team thinks is because a lot of these smaller companies are finally starting to feel the brunt of a lot of macroeconomic policy that have been enacted. So higher cost of capital, weakened consumer demand. And what we've actually seen in real time is a lot of these businesses underperforming vendor forecasts. And so when you overlay that dynamic and what is a reasonably challenging financing market for acquisitions, although capital is still there, it's obviously more expensive, like absent a clear reason why a seller should transact today. I think many of them are holding on to class A assets, if you will, until volatility drops and there's a little bit more visibility in the market. We have a sense that that's going to be, you know, Q1, Q2 next year, but who knows? But if I take a bigger step back kind of around this industry, I'm biased given that, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing now, but we still see a huge amount of opportunity. Right. I know, like I said, I know you had an event uh, that had a lot of people around the search space in the lower middle market space. And every time there's a gathering of, you know, 200 or so people, I think everybody's asking themselves, are we at peak market conditions? Is there a supply demand imbalance? What does that mean for people looking to buy assets in this space? And look, I think there are a handful of truisms. Like there's more capital that's willing to underwrite the risks associated with small business ownership, period, full stop search and entrepreneurship through acquisitions and the number of folks and family offices looking to put money to work in this space is increasing. And now, you know, search and ETA are commonly accepted as career paths, which means there are more smart people coming into the space. And so as markets function, when you've got well-capitalized, smart people, returns drop. 
right? Or outsized returns drop or opportunity, broadly speaking, drops. The counter to that, you know, from our perspective is there are so many small businesses in Canada and the U.S. that need transition capital. We don't think we're close to the point of saturation. I am consistently amazed by the new industries I'm discovering, let alone the wonderful little companies that make money providing services or making things I never knew existed. And so I don't think that supply and demand imbalance is going to be particularly problematic in the near term. I'm clearly bullish. If I wasn't, like I said, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. And so I think, you know, the future of the space is bright. Obviously, it doesn't hurt to have a committed pool of capital at our backs and our differentiated approach hopefully helps us stand out from the crowd. But I still see a lot of opportunity. You've kind of already gone to the question where I wanted to go. So I'm going to kind of add on to it, which is I always ask our panelists to talk about what they see coming, the trends for the future. You've already touched upon them. When you look at 24, uh, the year ahead, what do you see? uh, Any trends you particularly see? You're on the ground every day from a deal flow perspective, from a getting deals done perspective. It's a good question. What trends do I see? I still see more capital coming into the space. I see more transaction volumes getting done. I think there are a couple of conditions required for that to happen, and I'm cautiously optimistic those will happen. I think you know, there's got to be a little bit more stability as it relates to macroeconomic policies and a little bit of a shift in certainly in sentiment in terms of what's happening to these businesses in real time. I don't want to say a normalization. I'd characterize it as a normalization. And I think, like I said, some of that volatility in financing markets has to disappear. But I think transaction volumes will continue to pick up. And we're seeing that slowly in the stats, like deal volumes are on the rise. And so I see that continuing into the next year. Greg, I want to thank you for joining us. You know, first of all, congratulations on the creation of Alcord. It's not every day we have a new P fund in our marketplace. It's very hard to do. And so congratulations to you and Schmitz for, for creating something unique and special. And then congratulations on your first deal. And thank you for joining us today to tell us the story, to tell us the story of Alcord, to tell us the story of your success and best wishes for the future. Thanks so much, Mario. It was a pleasure being here.